Hi, I'm Bethany, and I'm on a journey of discovering what loving oneself actually looks like. I want to invite you into my process, hear some of my crazy stories, as well as hear some amazing people with wisdom and insight give their take on what it looks like to love yourself well, and in turn, be able to love people well too. Come on, let's go. Why, hello again. Thanks so much for tuning in to episode seven of Like Me, Like You. Uh, Last week's episode was a little uh, interesting concerning the story that it was about. It was just about, you know, kind of a terrifying dating experience that I had, you know, and and the funny thing is, is after episode five, which is the first half of the story, I know I left it kind of on a cliffhanger. And I had a coworker approach me and he said, um, I have to talk to you about something. And he totally took me off guard. And he goes, I cannot believe that you would just leave me at that cliffhanger. <laughs> and so uh, I thought I would, you know, I really, I really laughed really hard. I wasn't expecting that. I thought it was going to be about a work thing. So um, it, it, it tickled me for sure. So this week I thought I would uh, kind of lighten the mood a little bit. And tell you about a time that I went on a date and I was the jerk, (laughs) which uh, we all can be jerks, you know, we all can be jerks. So um, this happened about five years ago. I was living in Georgia, a little town outside of Chattanooga, just south of the state line uh, in a place. I lived in a place called um, well, I worked in a place called Fort Oglethorpe, Georgia, and which is which is wild. Um, it's a town from the Civil War. There's national parks throughout. It's all very um, old fashioned, old fashioned Southern for sure. And during that time, I was a funeral director. Anybody who's listened to my previous episodes know I was a funeral director, and I had moved down south. I was invited by my aunt and uncle, who are pastors and who are amazing in Georgia, um, to to be with them. To basically, I was living up in Chicago by myself. I was working at a crematory. If I can just paint this picture for you guys, I was working at a crematory that was closed to the public. So what that means is I was cremating uh, deceased people for funeral homes that did not have their own crematory. So what that means is that I would travel from funeral home to funeral home to funeral home, um, pick up loved ones of people who had passed away, who've requested cremation, bring them back to our facility. I would cremate them and bring their cremains or whatever old school people call them ashes, but new fandangled term is cremains, bring their cremains back to the funeral home so that they could give it to the family and or have services, whatever it is that they were planning on doing. So this facilitate was just me and about five what we call retort machines. The retort machines are the machines that are used to cremate people and they get really hot. They get probably to the temperature between 1800 and 2200 degrees Fahrenheit. So if you could imagine, there's lots of mechanics involved, everything is connected to an electric or electronic system. We had a third-party company that was constantly watching our levels. There's all kinds of technicalities required to it. So anyway, I was working there for the most part by myself. And um, the 
only interactions that I would have with actually like living people were other funeral directors who let me just tell you, we're all pretty freaking weird. And it's only because, A, you, I think you kind of have to be weird to be in that profession to begin with, you know, and B, you just have a whole different mindset. You're seeing so much stuff. You're seeing so much traumatic stuff and you're being involved. You're like involving yourself in extremely sad situations on a, on the daily basis. That's how you're getting paid is you are just jumping into trauma on a, on a regular basis. So it tends to kind of numb you a little bit. It tends to kind of give you a little bit of a like perverse way of thinking about like life. And unfortunately, you have to really keep yourself grounded. You have to really focus on compassion, compassion for people. And that's what I was kind of fearful of for myself is that I I could feel that I was getting weird. <laughs> I can remember calling my brother and being like, gosh, I am getting so weird because I was working in this, cre- this closed crematory and then at night I was on call. So I would do these on calls basically for the crematory that we were providing another service to another facility. And what it was is basically, you know, people don't die from 9 to 5 p.m., you know, on Monday through Friday. They die, unfortunately, all hours of the night, on the weekend, on holidays. And so you have to be prepared to be able to go and bring these deceased family members into your care. And so at night, I would be on call and I would go, I would get calls all over Chicago and I would pick up remains from hospitals, nursing homes, coroner's office, like you name it. And I got paid per call, which is why they make it so appealing, is I was making a lot of money um, in a place like Chicago doing these calls at night. I was making a certain amount of money per, per pickup call and a certain amount of money if there was embalming involved. So... I was making a lot of money, which also didn't help that I was getting so weird and then had a bunch of money because <laughs> it makes you do even weirder things. So like it got to the point that I was spending a lot of money on alcohol. I was like, I can remember I was cycling out my closet every three months. I was buying myself a brand new wardrobe every three months. If you can wrap your money, your your money, <laughs> if you can wrap your mind about around how much money that is. Well, all this was happening, I was not serving the Lord. I totally walked away from the Lord. I was really close to becoming an alcoholic. I was drinking a lot. I was partying a lot, meeting with my friends who were also funeral directors, who understood the business, who knew what it was like. And we would get together and spend a lot of money drinking a lot together, which is a great idea. I don't know if anybody's ever told you that if you're really unhappy, you should involve alcohol and lots of money and then do it around other people who you know, have lots of money and also drinking a lot of alcohol. It's just perfect. It's a perfect recipe for health. So um, we, uh, that, that was my life. So I was working at night, picking up deceased bodies, you know, picking up p- people's bodies at night. And then during the day, I was cremating them. Like this was, that was my life around the clock. I was having no contact with anyone. I lived by myself. I would go home, go to bed. I would get up, go back to the crematory, work, be on call, run around, pick up bodies, bring them back to the crematory, go home, go to sleep, come back, work at the crematory. Like that was my life. Um, And I got a call one day (laughs) from my aunt and uncle who was like, you know, we really love you and we are, you know, we're just really nervous for you. (laughs) And they had every, they had every right to be nervous for me. There was good cause for them to be nervous. And I really believe it was the Lord putting, 
me on their heart and they saw me. They saw my life choices. They saw how I was living. They saw all of these things and they invited me to just come down uh, to Georgia and to be with them and to live with them, which was such a gift and such a kindness. I hadn't been around family for a while. So at this point, my parents had moved back to Canada. My brother-in-law and sister were in New York. Um, My brother Judah moved down here to Nashville, uh, where I'm currently work now in Nashville. But I convinced myself it was a good idea. I was going to go down to Georgia. That way I'm closer to my brother. He's only two hours away. And I'll stay with my aunt and uncle, which was so funny at the time. His, I, I joke with my brother about this now, is that at the time he was in ministry school. He was in this school that I eventually moved up here to do, which is the School of Supernatural Life. And he was in school and he was trying to raise money and, you know, go on these missions trip and raise money for missions and raise money for a school. And here I was being a little weirdo working up there all the time. And I was literally sending him money all of the time and literally investing in him, investing in his life, investing in him, changing everything about him. And I then, I think it was not even a year and a half later, became the recipient of the benefits of that school and had my life changed as well. So I was actually sewing into changing my life and didn't even know what I was doing, you know, which is just crazy to think about how like God just puts you on a path to something and you don't see far ahead like he does but my goodness he sure does have a plan so if you if you hear anything out of that whole entire nonsense of a rant hear that God has a plan for your life and that you might not know what it looks like right now and you might be doing some weird stuff and you might be really unhappy but if you allow him to start like guiding your steps he will move you exactly where he wants you to be so I decided to move down to uh, Georgia, uh, which was a big move. I decided in two weeks, I think I flew down there on a Saturday. Uh, I interviewed, I flew back on a Sunday and Monday they offered me the job and I gave my two weeks notice that Monday and gave away all of my stuff. Everything that I had in my house, I gave it away except five boxes of clothes, my TV and anything that I could shove into my Volkswagen Beetle convertible, which was not much. I'll tell you that. So I drove myself down to Georgia, was working for a funeral home down there and just kind of still struggled. I was struggling with now I was under the house. I was like under the roof of a pastor trying to live right, trying to do the right thing trying to get myself out of the rut that I was in in Chicago, you know, very unhappy, working all the time, drinking a lot, all those things. Now living under the roof of my family, um, being loved by them, them just kind of like, you know, I feel like they they treated me like a foster dog in a sense of like, hey, little guy, like, let's pet you. And me going like, why are you petting me? What's wrong with me? Why, you know, like there was this whole back and forth of them trying to love me well and me allowing some of it, but not so much of it all the time and just kind of working. And um, one of the things that I've learned that I do to like, uh, I guess, self-soothe maybe or, you know, false comforts, whatever you want to say when I am struggling with life or having a hard time or want to like shut down and like kind of go into um, just like automated driving of like not having to worry about much is I will get on like a dating app. And so I had convinced myself at the time, like, okay, I am, I don't know anybody. I'm new here. I don't have any friends outside of my immediate family. Everyone that I work with at the funeral home, they're like men. 
you know, I was the only female funeral director. Um, they were all men, all married, all older than me. So it didn't, nothing, I didn't have any connection with anyone. So I decided I'm going to get on a dating app. So I got on a dating app and I met all kinds of people. I went on all kinds of terrible dates, which I'll tell you about in the future. But the one in particular that I'm telling you about today um, was this kind guy that I met. And we'll, we'll just call him John. We'll just call him John for now. But John um, was a military veteran. And he was just kind of like, you know, very sweet, but also very like rough around the edges. Like he was a blue collar worker. He was a mechanic, a diesel mechanic. Like his hands were always dirty. You know what I mean? Like he worked hard. He was a hard worker all the time. He was kind of a loner. It was just him and his dog. Like he, I could tell, didn't like to be around too many people, you know, that sort of a thing. So um, as a funeral director, I, you know, in Georgia, we were really close to a national cemetery which is um, a cemetery for people who served in the military. And there is a very high number of uh, veterans in the South. They're very patriotic. It, it's, it makes sense that a lot of people down South who are patriotic, have a love for country, that the men would also be veterans and serve a certain amount of time in the military. So I was very used to doing military services. We had... You know, we had volunteer military services that provide funeral services for, uh, you know, veterans, as well as I was well in contact with branches of the military that provided funeral rites as well. So, you know, 21 gun salutes and all of the things that are required. There was a lot of paperwork involved that that I had to do on a regular basis that were a very small benefit of being a veteran for the military. Um, So I knew the ins and outs of these funerals. I knew the ins and outs of the rules and the requirements. I knew what the government would pay for versus what they don't pay for. I ran into a lot of like families thinking that the government was going to pay for more than what they would. Um, So I was constantly having to let let families down and be like, I'm so sorry. This um, honorable discharge paperwork, it only covers A, B, and C. You know, um, that was a regular part of my conversation with families. Um, so you add into the fact that I'm a northerner living in the South, just around people who are sad in the South. They sometimes didn't take kindly to my northern accent. I got told I talked a lot and that I was a fast talker, which is also hilarious. I also got told a lot. Let's see. I don't know if I can mimic it, but it'd say like, what did you say? I can't understand what you're saying because they couldn't understand me, which I would say like, what? I don't <laughs> I don't understand what you just said. And so it would be this crazy uh, back and forth conversation of me having no idea what they're saying to me, them having no idea what I'm saying to them. So I learned that I would start every conversation with the families of someone who passed away of like, hi, my name is Bethany. I am actually from up north. Uh, If I say anything that you don't understand or if I start to talk too fast, please let me know. I would love to be able to explain myself fully. Also, in return, I am not used to really thick southern accents. So please don't be offended if I ask you to repeat yourself or to say something or to spell something for me. And usually that was taken very well. But man, at the beginning, it was quite, it was, it was a little wild. I remember sitting down with a family and one time I was taking all the statistical information and information for an obituary and they said his name was Watt, Watt. And I was like, his name is 
white white and they were like no his name is what what and I was like his <laughs> what like his name is white white and they were like no like getting frustrated with me his name is white white and it was like Wyatt Wyatt white and I was or white Wyatt or something along those lines and I was like dang I, am, I can't tell the difference like my ears aren't attuned to that you know and so it's really funny when it comes to like language even in conversation with people what you grow accustomed to hearing and what you grow accustomed to not hearing and how in every situation between the frustrations of these two individuals, me being one of them and somebody from the South being another, um, I thought I was speaking very clearly and that you should be able to understand me. And they thought they were speaking very clearly and that they should be understood easily. And it was an interesting exchange to now think about how many times do we think we're being very clear in communication and in all actuality, they have no idea what we're saying, Um, which is a lesson to learn when you are dealing with people who are going through the very worst thing that they could possibly be going through, is you have to realize this isn't about them understanding me and me thinking they should. I should be doing whatever I can so that they will understand me, you know? And um, this is where I fell short one of these dates. So poor John, this military guy, kind of gruff and scruff, you know, kind of rough and tumble. You know, he didn't say the biggest words. He wasn't like very, he gave the persona of just being like a blue collar kid, you know, kind of grew up very humble. And there was something appealing about him to me because he was just really kind. And I didn't know anybody you know, and he was kind of a loner and I was forced to kind of be a loner because I didn't really know anyone. So um, I agreed to go on a date with him. And of course, because I'm so phenomenal, he was totally smitten. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> I think he I think he was just like, yeah, you're somebody different. You know what I mean? I wasn't your typical Southern belle at all by any means. So um, we went out a few times. And one thing that I noticed about John is that, man, I was really smart and he really wasn't. That's that's where my mind went, was like, I am so smart and I have such a really niche job and I need somebody who's on my level and he is not on my level. And every single time we would have contact. He, I mean, at one time, he literally, I had a flat tire <laughs> and I was at work. I was at the funeral home at work and he texted me like, what are you doing? What's going on? He left his job, came to the funeral home and not just changed my tire to like a spare, t- like like a donut. He went and got a new tire, came to the funeral home and brought me a new tire and did not refuse to allow me to pay him for it, which I didn't know what to do with because I had the mindset that men only gave you things Um, so that later they could call and request a payback. So that was my experience with dating. So I was almost beside myself that he wouldn't allow me to pay him back because I thought he was dumb. (laughs) So my whole plan was I had one foot out the door, one foot in the door, and I was getting ready to exit. And he is kind. He's like so extravagantly kind to me. And um, 
I didn't know what to do. And so I started to plan like, okay, this isn't working out between me and him. Like, gosh, I can't even have intellectual conversations with him. And we just don't match. And his hands are dirty. And, you know, like I am dressed up and like my makeup and hair is done. And he's coming on these dates and like a flannel and like gym, you know, like in jeans. And, you know, he's got combat boots. And it's just so absurd. And so uh, we go out for dinner one night. He invites me out to dinner and I decide this is, this is the night. This is the night that we, we, you know, I'm going to end this. This is the night. So (laughs) we, uh, go out to an Italian restaurant (laughs) and it's like a Friday night. So it's hopping. It's really busy. We're surrounded by dates. Like all these other people at these tables directly next to us are on dates, you know, so you're kind of eavesdropping. I do anyway, kind of eavesdropping. I'm like, wow, look, they're on a first date. Oh, look, there are a couple that have been together for years. So he and I are still getting to know one another. This is probably, I don't know, our fifth date. And, um, I decide, okay, this is, this is what I'm going to do. And if you listen to my previous episodes, you know that I have a fallback coward move that when I'm going to break up with somebody or end dating them or end seeing them, I would blame the Lord. So I'm so sorry. I am really going to focus on God. And so I feel like I shouldn't date you anymore. I should focus on the Lord, right? This is like my cop out, my like go to. Well, John is not as dumb as I thought he was. So we're sitting down, we're eating, and I lay it out. Okay, John, here's the thing. Um, I'm really sorry. I'm going to have to end this. I don't I don't know that we can um, see one another anymore. I just really feel like I have to work on my relationship with the Lord, and I can't, have, I can't date you and work on my relationship with the Lord right now, so I'm just going to have to end things with you. To which he responds, I love God. <laughs> and I was like, I've literally, that threw me on my heels because I at the time didn't. I wasn't even literally like serving the Lord probably. I was just like barely attending church, kind of playing church, not even really concerned with anything. And I would use that as a scapegoat. I grew up in church. I had, I knew enough to get me by, but like I, that wasn't true. What I was saying was true, wasn't true. So I felt like he called me out on a lie. He didn't even know it, but he called me out on a lie. So I backed up on my heels and I said, oh, yeah, well, if you love God, then what is your favorite book of the Bible? And this man looked at him, looked down and looked back up like he was thinking. And he kind of had an aha moment. He goes, I know my favorite book of the Bible. I said, what is it? And he said, "Uh, uh, poems. And that was enough because I had already convinced myself I was smarter than this man. I was more worthy than this man. I was worth more as a human than this man. And I literally jumped down his throat and I was like, do you mean Psalms? I was like, that just goes to show you have no idea what you're talking about. And I like flew into him at this restaurant. In hindsight, I believe it was because I was just trying to get out of there because he caught me in a lie. He caught me lying. And I was now on the defensive, was trying to get out of there and just insulted him, berated him. Like, how dare you? Blah, 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 blah. This is not, I can't even have a conversation with you. And he got really kind of puffy for a second. He goes, so what? So what? You're smart because you went, you went, you took trigger rocketry in high school. And I literally was like, oh my God, you idiot. This just proves my point. Do you mean trigonometry? And he was like, fine. It's okay. I'm not smart. Then. And we are in a restaurant surrounded by dates. <laughs> he and I are having this out and out about him being dumb and me being smart. And he's not worthy of me. Think about the arrogance of that. Think about what I'm arguing. I'm arguing 
that I am more deserving of this man and that I'm smarter than this man, all because of a couple encounters we had, all because of just like, I don't know, four or five dates that we went on total. Here he was so kind. He went out of his way to be kind to me so many times. And the arrogance that I had. Now, I'm not saying I should have married John. I'm not saying that I should have kept dating John. But I sure do believe I should have been a lot kinder to John. I could have been honest with John. I could have told him the truth. So here we are going back and forth. I start calling him like, God, you're such an idiot. I can't even believe that you would even say, you can't even say trigonometry. Like, this is so ridiculous. You know, so anyway, so I decided to just, just seal the deal. Just put the last nail in the coffin, for lack of a better term. And I threw in there, oh, yeah, and by the way, uh, we talked before about funeral services. And just so you know, nothing that you think you're getting, you're going to get. This is what you're going to get. And I went through the list because I had that conversation so many times with families. And he had told me in a previous conversation that the that the government was going to pay for his funeral. And I just didn't say anything. and didn't let it go. But I brought it up. I sure did bring it up in this fight. And I was like, guess what? You don't even know this, but the government's not doing anything that you say. Blah, 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 blah. Just to like just cause, you know, insult to injury. And that kind of took him off. And I kind of took the winds out of his sail. And he just kind of sat back on his heels for a second, just in the back of the chair. He slumped down and he looked defeated. And I knew I won. Like, haha, my intellectual dominance in this conversation. I beat it. And uh, he just looked up at me and he said, you know, it goes, well, maybe, but that's not what the letter said. And I'd never taken care of a family who presented me with a letter before. So I said, a what? And he said, a letter from the president. And I was, I kind of inhaled and said, pardon me? And he said, yeah, I, uh, I won all of these. And he started to list the honorable awards that he received from the president of the United States with letters, with invitations to, um, to Washington. Not only are all of his services paid for, but uh, he has a spot at the National Cemetery in Washington, D.C. Like this, this um, guy. So I quietly sat as he told me, because I asked why, uh, what he did. And this man's a freaking hero. So he, he uh, the first time he was enlisted, <laughs> he went over to Iraq and um, there was some sort of an explosive that he caught. And he threw himself on it to save everyone else around him because he's kind. And he had all kinds of injuries and broken limbs and you name it. And he miraculously recovered, had all of his limbs. He has like major scars and shrapnel wounds and all of that. And didn't feel like his time was done with the Marines and decided to go back and enlisted again and was sent to Afghanistan And there he was under fire and was wounded, got shot, and everyone around him was getting shot. And I believe he got shot a total of nine times because he kept going out and pulling injured soldiers to safety. And in the middle of it, got shot nine times and finally got an honorable discharge and and recovered and healed, went to school, became a diesel mechanic. And I can guarantee you that the military is paying for all of his services, his cat, like you name it, like every bell and whistle that this man wants, he is getting. 
And I can remember being so mortified that here I thought I had expertise in a field and I had no idea what this guy was talking about. And he was right. He was totally right. And I misjudged him. I stopped looking at his kindness. I stopped looking at the humility that he carried. I stopped looking at all of those things. And all I saw was somebody who like didn't know how to use big words like me, who um, sometimes made, you know, grammatical errors and mistakes and you name it, all these things. I was literally judging this, like literally judging a book by its cover. I was judging this guy hardcore. I was so mortified and I apologized. I actually started to cry because <laughs> I felt so bad. And anyway, needless to say, ended the date. And he wouldn't even let me pay for my own meal after I berated him at a table in front of other dates. Like, it's just so cringeworthy. And I couldn't believe what I did. And I had to call my friend. <laughs> so I was like driving home. And I called my friend Karen and just told her, like, you will not believe what just happened. And her and I literally, I the only thing that I could do in the car was to laugh because I could not believe what I had done. Like, I couldn't believe it. And so... um, I will say that's probably one of the biggest lessons that I've learned from my own mistakes and like judging that man to this day. Um, his name's not John, but if you are out there and you somehow come across this podcast one of these days and that story's all too familiar, I, from the bottom of my heart, am so sorry to this day. It like, uh, it grieves me that I was so unkind. I was so unkind. And from that point on, I decided that regardless of who it is and regardless of what situation I'm in or regardless of how someone presents themselves, I will choose to be kind. Like kindness is always a choice. Always. You can always choose to be kind. And so my encouragement to you is to learn a valuable lesson from old Bethany and always choose kindness. Uh, I hope you got some giggles out of that. I know I have. I didn't think, I haven't thought about that in a little while, so it got me good. Anyway, until next time, talk to you later. Bye.